We are going to energize the country. We need to wake up and smell the coffee. No more Mr. Nice Guy. Another future is possible, but we've got to fight for it. Order! Hello and welcome to the Debated Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Will. I'm joined by my co-host, Conrad. Hello. And in this episode, we are delighted to be joined by William Clouston, leader of the Social Democratic Party, also known as the SDP. Welcome to the podcast, William. Great to be here. Thank you for the invitation. Um, So the first question uh, that I'd like to ask, because this podcast is looking at the Hartlepool by-election that's coming up, is... Have you decided who your candidate will be for Hartlepool yet? And if not, uh, when will you be announcing your candidate and when you, will you be selecting your candidate for that by-election? Uh, good question. Well, we're a democratic party. Uh, we uh, have gone out to all the members. Uh, we, do have, we do have a candidate's list, but uh, we've gone out to all members and the head of candidates reported back on Friday with the shortlist. And as this has been recorded on Saturday, actually tomorrow on Sunday, the National Committee will select a candidate. Um, what makes you think um, the SDP has a great appeal in Hartlepool specifically? Um, I think our values uh, basically sit on pr- pretty much on top of red wall seats like Hartlepool. Um, so, uh, you know, our, our offer in politics, which is a blend of of left and right, I suppose, um, pretty much reflects uh, a lot of the ideas and concerns that voters have in red wall seats. So I think if you if you were to do a blind tasting, uh, if people were to look at our policy platform and our attitudes and our beliefs and values, uh, we would win the election uh, because we're pretty much sitting on top of it. Uh, but that's possibly unlikely because we're a small party and growing. So we've got a, always got a... a a challenge of, of getting our ideas across. But um, yes, yeah, certainly in, in terms of what we believe in, uh, we don't have to move an inch. We are pretty much on top of what voters uh, want in Hartlepool. Uh, now, of course, Hartlepool is an area that uh, substantially voted to leave the European Union in the 2016 uh, referendum. And of course, the SDP has uh, supported uh, Brexit uh, for a while, a very long time. Um, what do you think are the discernible differences uh, Brexit has made uh, already? Or do you think that these kind of differences are going to take longer to be seen in areas like Hartlepool and around the rest of the country? Um, I think the, I mean, you, you could argue that it changes the electoral dynamics, but a post-Brexit uh, environment uh, is different to a pre-Brexit environment. Certainly in the general election in, tw- in 2019, um, you know, a, a lot of voters up and down the country were um, upset that their, their democratic vote in 2016 had been dishonoured and, you know, this cultural establishment, media establishment, industrial establishment had tried to uh, effectively to, to, to overturn that uh, vote. And there was a lot of bitterness about it and, it and it needed resolving. And I think, yes, you could argue that 2019 resolved it, but of course... Whenever there's a cultural divide and a value divide like that, um, these things tend to uh, leave scars, don't they? So I don't think the, uh, the political identity of being uh, a Remainer or uh, a Lever just evaporates. It doesn't go overnight. And in any case, um, to a great extent, the uh, value divides that those two labels represent um, are intact. Uh, you know, you might, to take David Goodhart's, description you might describe it as an anywhere somewhere divide 
but you know, politics has certainly taken a, a cultural turn, and the it has massive implications for the political parties. This, and I think they're they're still sort of grappling with the issues. Uh, so. I would say, yes, the, the sort of immediate, the acute intensity that you've got in 2019 has probably uh, faded somewhat. But the basic value divides remain, and, and I think the, the major parties are still going to struggle with that. The major parties, Labour's held Hartlepool since it was created as a constituency. Um, you describe your party as being left on economics. Um, what specific policies do you think can appeal to these Labour voters? The interesting thing about the SDP's offer, as I say, is it's sort of economic uh, left-leaning and uh, culturally traditional and patriotic, uh, which, as I say, is a pretty good match for many, probably certainly a majority of voters in Hartlepool. Um, what, does it, what does it mean? I mean, basically, the, the important aspects of our economic ideas for Hartlepool are concerned with uh, in industry, uh, industrial jobs. Uh, what we've had is 30 years, 40 years of econ liberalism, uh, where we've been encouraged to be totally indifferent to what is made, where and by whom. Uh, it's an ideology, basically, uh, which, you know, post Thatcher and during Thatcher's period was taken on pretty much by the establishment. New Labour took that view on as well. And so you've you've got you know, basically 30, 40 years of deindustrialization. I think, you know, manufacturing industry now as a percentage of GDP is down at sort of 11%. Uh, and if you look at towns like Hartlepool, um, what's been undermined is the indus industrial wage, the industrial job, the secure industrial jobs has been, has been undermined. So people, that's been replaced with uh, precarious uh, employment. And of course, behind every industrial job was, was a family that depended on that job. And so the consequences of both parties' indifference to industrial manufacturing uh, has been very tough on Hartlepool and other places like it. So uh, what, we're, what we're seeing is basically the effects of economic liberalism uh, gutting industry in the West. And the pandemic brutally uh, brought that to the fore when uh, throughout the West, it wasn't just this country, but the United States was exactly the same. Uh, you know, scrabbling around for kit uh, um, because they've lost industrial capacity. They don't have the capacity to make their own uh, uh, essential strategic uh, supplies. So basically our, our, our core message of, of believing in and wanting to re-industrialize uh, comes with a whole set of uh, industrial policies, which I can go into in more detail. But basically, neither Labour nor the Tories actually believe in these policies. So in terms of what they can offer Hartlepool, they don't offer much. In terms of de-industrialisation, we've seen the impact not just on Hartlepool, but constituencies throughout the north of England of de-industrialisation. How would uh, an SDP MP, if an SDP MP were elected, how would uh, that MP advocate for uh, more industrialisation or bringing uh, industries back to Hartlepool and how effective do you think one member of parliament could be uh, in reinvigorating an area? Or do you think that they would just uh, be a, a stepping stone for you to uh, gain greater support in other parts of the country? A good MP, a good MP can advocate for the right policy. But I, I totally acknowledge, unless you can change the core beliefs, the things that much of our political establishment have clung to, um, 
for the past 30, 40 years. Unless you can change that, then your, your macro policy won't change. So I, I totally acknowledge that. There's a limit to what a, an individual MP can do. Um, nevertheless, you make the argument. You make the argument. And actually, currently, I know, you know a lot of our political opponents on the liberal economic side are, are slow learners, but um, just you know, reality bites, doesn't it? You only have to look at the last 12 months to realize that actually some domestic resilience, some national resilience in a number of key industries uh, is actually very sensible. And if you look at what, you know, contrary to their previous approach for the last 30 years, if you look at what the government's actually done, say, on vaccine production, uh, they've taken a very domestic focus. I mean, we, we, we produce about 2 million uh, vaccines uh, under the you know the Astra, Astra jab is, is, is made here about two million a, a week. Uh, there is there are plans to produce another vaccine in Stockton, which is very close to Hartlepool. Now, this is basically reality biting. Uh, people realise that uh, you know global free trade was a rather utopian idea, and in any case, it simply hasn't been in the interests of core voters in places like Hartlepool. It's it's it's, it's basically ripped there. Um, means of living away, and uh, and, the, and what, what have we been replaced with? Services and precarious jobs. So, no, you've got to you've got to make the case. But I totally, I mean, this you know, this is a parliamentary election. You want a you know good MP. I'm very excited about our our uh, shortlist of candidates. We've got some excellent people, and we've just got to do our best to get the message across. Basically, um, on uh, that point relating to the uh, link between um, globalisation, in particular areas and constituencies. Do you not also think that there will be people uh, in Hartlepool whose jobs are linked to global industries and globalisation who may uh, see the argument that you're putting forward as one that may hurt their jobs and may put them off voting for the SDP? What argument would you make to, to those voters? I admit the argument that in macro, you know, on the macro level, I mean, obviously, if you, if you, if you alter the terms of trade, uh, it, you know, there, there are winners and losers in that. I wouldn't, um, I wouldn't deny that. Mm. And, you know, even the process of leaving the European Union and, you know, outside the transition area now, uh, you only have to look at the, um, the changes to trade flows in the January figures to see there is, you know, there's considerable adaptation, uh, currently um, taking place. But what you've got to look at is in, in aggregate, are you, are you basically uh, raising the, 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 the um, proportion of GDP, which is, is proper manufacturing, or, or are you uh, continuing to, to, to let it go? And, and at the heart of this is basically, a, 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 it gets back to a, a very simple word, indifference. What you've been encouraged to think, it doesn't matter where things are made. If you take that attitude and you're, uh, industry literally migrates to the cheapest single uh, factory producer, uh, which, which is you know, generally in Southeast Asia, generally in, in, in China. You literally end up with no industry at all in the end. I mean, that's the end game. Now, you can, you can argue that in the short term, uh, running colossal trade deficits, you know, even, even with the European Union, trade deficit is over 100, you know, about, about 80, 80, 80, 90 billion getting on for 100 billion. You can argue in the short term, it doesn't really matter because you've got the goods. But remember, in trade policy, uh, there's a basic arithmetic to that. Uh, you can only pay for your imports in three ways. You can pay them with what you make today. You can pay them with paper promises, i.e. debt, uh, which is, you know, say a model like the 
domestic uh, car sales um, industry in the UK is largely on that. We import uh, German cars. We take on household debt for it. Um, and the third way is to sell something which we, we've already made, which is passed off by successive Tory governments as uh, F FDI in a foreign direct investment. It's not investment at all. You're just selling what you already have. You're selling assets you've made in, in the past, usually property and other uh, assets. So actually, if, you, if you're indifferent about these things, you, you will slowly become poorer. And that's basically what's happened. I wouldn't argue that um, an adaptation to a more industrialized uh, society wouldn't uh, you know, be painful for some. But and it can also incidentally couldn't couldn't be pursued. It couldn't be achieved instantly. To get into this situation, we've had thirty years of indifference. To get out of it, you'd, you'd take twenty years. Even if, as the STP advocates, your you know major uh, players in domestic policy in the Bank of England and um, Department of Industry and so on, uh, you know, were, were tasked. With, uh, putting forward policies which would, were specifically aimed at in increasing the proportion of uh, industrial production from from 11% up to say 15 or 20, and and were specifically tasked with reducing the trade deficit. It would take time. It really would take time, but it could could happen. It does. You've only got to have the. You know, I mean, a point I would make to any Labour politician in this election is that Labour has been arguing for membership of the European Union strongly. I mean, Starmer strongly tried to dishonour this vote. And the candidate, Paul Williams, in this election also tried to dishonour uh, people's votes in Hartlepool. Now, you can have that policy, but if you, if you got what Labour wanted there, you couldn't have an independent trade policy. It's a fact. Now, if you can't have a, an independent trade policy, you can't reindustrialize. You can't reshore industrial production. You can't uh, engage in industrial, uh, you know, in import substitution. So, um, and they profess, I mean, the Labour Party profess to be Keynesians, but their support, their continued support for the European Union would effectively uh, prevent them from implementing the Keynesianism which they profess to, to believe in. So it, basically their policy doesn't make sense. And the, on the other side, the Tory policy is continued indifference um, and in hock to the, uh, to the city. So I think if, if Hartlepool voters are interested in, in a party that really believes in reindustrializing and thinks that the industrial job is important. They want to, they want to consider the SDP. Now, um, you mentioned the Tory policy there, and um, the Tories have moved sort of somewhat economically left in the last few years with the... Um, you know that's the sort of end of austerity era um and in, t in terms of industrial strategy as well they're considering um nationalizing liberty steel um if it if it was to go under um what do you make of the argument that um your voters and your sort of members could be better used to join the conservatives and influence them towards the political ground that you want them to inhabit that's a good question i mean anyone Anyone, you know, choosing to um, to to promote and build up and rebuild a, a smaller political party must get must consider this. But uh, you know, I, I was I, I was a social Democrat, an active social democrat in the eighties, and I had four years in the Tory party, um, and I made friends. But um, I, you know, that was four years enough to be honest. I think you, your your prospect, your chances of of getting the particular program, the particular combination, the sort of red and blue combination which the SDP represents within an organisation like the Tories is, is is next to, you know, zero, I would say, pretty much. I mean, the Tory party, 
the Tory party's strength is is actually it's um it's it's sort of intellectual vacuity i mean it's 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 it basically doesn't have any strong opinions there are some liberals i mean there are some its biggest single group is probably you know um hayek type uh you know free trade liberals and there's nothing wrong with that you know you can have you can be a gladstonian free trader and and if you are you're better off in the tory party but uh the chance of of the Tory party fully embracing, uh, you know, trade friction and an active industrial policy. I mean, they just closed down the major committee on industrial strategy two weeks ago. I mean, they're not, they're not actually terribly interested in this. What you tend to get from the Tories is, is, uh, you know, fairly cheap, uh, announcements and, um, and PR. Uh, but I, I, I just genuinely don't believe that they are particularly interested in, uh, in, in pursuing this. And, um, and likewise, uh, it, it, it might seem bizarre, but on the on the socially conservative side, um, the SDP is a much more socially conservative party than the Conservatives, who are again uh, some sort of some type of liberal party in effect. Um, or many of the difficulties they've got themselves into now with with the overreach of woke progressivism, as a result of their own. Uh, I mean, they've been in government for ten years, but most of the institutions have been have been overrun by this stuff, and they've done absolutely nothing to deal with it and they uh you know it d- doesn't really matter which category you talk about you could talk about you know ask yourself a question of the if the tories done anything to support the family no nothing absolutely nothing and they've had opportunities but they're just simply not interested in it and so if you want to pursue families that will support uh you know uh, household formation and, uh, and give give citizens a chance to get a house and raise a family uh the tories are not the not the place you'd look, to be honest. So, no, I don't, I, it's a good question, but I don't, I think, honestly, anyone inside that has got to understand that, you know, you, you, you're prob- if, you, if, you, if you believe in our sort of politics, you're probably wasting your time. You really are better off rolling your sleeves up and building your own organisation. Um, looking at coronavirus, which has, of course, affected the entire UK, including Hartlepool, what lasting impact do you think it's going to have both on the... Uh, general uh, health of the population and the uh, economy of the population. What impact do you think it will have on Hartlepool? And how would a, an SDP MP respond to that impact and seek to uh, improve things for the constituents of Hartlepool? Well, at the macro scale, the biggest uh, impact will, will be even, even, you know, not accounting for the, for the local effects on local families and local individuals in Hartlepool, the macro effect will be simply the uh, the historic drag anchor effect of of the colossal um, quantum of, of of public debt which has been um, accumulated and private debt. Um, although households actually have, the savings rates shot up from sort of eight percent to twenty seven percent, so actually household savings in aggregate are, are, are rather good. Uh, you could argue that's possibly at the cost of you know ex- extremely expensive uh, furlough schemes and so on. But no, the the the, the you're looking at a, a, a effectively a wartime type event here, uh, and uh, I'm afraid um, when you've got gaps in in uh, the PSBR, um, you know the PSBR is, is is absolutely colossal at the moment. I mean, you know, the Chancellor is going to really really struggle over the next few years to pull that down to a reasonable effect. I mean, you can run a uh, you know, you can run a fiscal deficit of something like 30 billion and the um, fiscal drag will look after it and, you, 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 you know, your debt to GDP ratio will not increase. 
But even even we're a long way from that. I mean, uh, so I think I'm afraid the the long term effect um, for all of us is is whether you call it austerity or whether you, whatever you call it is is just uh, the, the the reality of having to deal with um, a colossal quantum of of accumulated debt. And you know, the National Auditor's Office has kept. Uh, running tallies of of the of the aggregate cost of just government expenditure, the, leaving aside the corporate debt, uh, which has been accumulated, just just government debt, um, uh, and it's it's running into the high three hundred billions. So I suspect the the aggregate total once we've once we've actually finally finally got out of it and things are back to what people might describe as normal, i.e., you know, the economy is open and most of the population is vaccinated. I think. You know, you, you're looking. If you combine it with private sector losses, uh, you're looking at uh, probably a you know a, a thousand billion. Which, uh, as I say, that's the biggest effect of all. A lot of people in um, northern areas such as Hartlepool feel a bit distant from Westminster. One of your policies is to create an English Parliament outside London, mm-hmm. um, and to give it equal power to the Scottish Parliament. Yeah. Um, you describe yourself as a unionist party. Do you not think that Devolution, as it's been implemented so far, has to sort of just only seek to divide the union, as it, as it, especially given a platform for a party like the SNP and Plaid Cymru. Oh well, I think it has. Yes, no, I think there's no doubt about this. I mean, I, I you know, I'm on record as being extremely critical of the Blair government. Blair, Blair, the Blair government was given basically a golden economic legacy. The major government was rather um, underrated government, actually. Uh, you know, uh, Clark as chancellor. Um, did, did, did rather well in digging himself out of the, the recession. And they handed a, a legacy to the Labour Party, which the Labour Party promptly squandered. Uh, my criticism was literally all, all over their programme. They didn't do any proper socialism. They didn't look at nationalising utilities, which had been rather sensible. They didn't nationalise the railways, didn't build any council houses. They did nothing, absolutely nothing, uh, on, the, on, the, on the econ left side things that we would, would be interested in doing. They had every opportunity to do so. They didn't believe in it. Uh, and they'd lost confidence in arguing for it. So they were useless at that. But, uh, and then, you know, obviously, the, the, the main scar of that government was the very foolish involvement in um, the Iraq war and attempting to impose liberal liberalism into complex Middle Eastern societies that had no real interest in it. Uh, you know, the cost of 650,000 lives. So shocking on that. But the question is about devolution. That's another thing that Blair got wrong. Blair thought that the the upswing, the the interest in Scottish nationalism would be quelled. He thought it would be reduced and uh, assuaged, basically, by uh, giving, um, creating a Scottish parliament. I don't think the Welsh were particularly interested in it. I think the euphoria um, of, of, of Blair and the Labour uh, influence in, 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 in Wales took it over the line. And, and, you know, it was only just taken over the line by a few votes in Wales. Uh, but in Scotland's case, um, he he basically fed the tiger. I mean, he, he fed something which they, they couldn't control. Uh, it was Donald Dewar said that, you know, the Scottish Parliament would uh, kill uh, the de- demand for Scottish independence dead. Well, it didn't. It just fed it. And uh, so... <clears throat> it, just on a very basic question, I mean, any entity, it's a bit like biological entropy. You know, something's either declining or, 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 or getting bigger. And, 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 and an entity like the United Kingdom is either um, disintegrating or integrating. And, and, and Blair basically, through devolution, uh, set it on a path of disintegration. Now, where we are now constitutionally, you can't 
there is very little appetite to remove the Scottish Parliament in Scotland. And, and if anything, we've just got a, a battle on our hands to, to keep Scotland in the Union. So uh, what we haven't addressed is the English question. And I think a sense of Englishness uh, and English identity uh, has, 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 um, has been put on the table, really, by, 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 the, by the Celtic nationalism that we, we find uh, in, in Scotland and Wales. And I think you can't ignore that. It's not just technical questions like, uh, you know, English votes and English laws or the, or the um, West Lothian question. Those are difficulties. But the, I think the bigger question is you can't leave England out of this. Um, and so we deal with it as a party head on and say, well, if we're going to have a Scottish Parliament and a, a Welsh Assembly and so on, you need an English Parliament um, to convene English identity and English policy. So I, that's what the proposal is. And then the cost of that, because uh, you can't have parliaments all over the place, is to have a, a unicameral UK Parliament, which I think would make sense because after all, the UK um, competences would be basically foreign affairs and defence and the things that span all, all four countries. So I think it would it would work. Uh, my preference would be for Parliament in York, although we don't actually say that. The SDP's policy board didn't agree with my, my <laughs> suggesting York, but I think York's a place where it, historically, culturally, it should be. And I think it would work, work, work well. I think the, the main criticism I hear uh, against an English Parliament is that it's, you know, people say, well, it's England's too big and it would dominate. Well, it actually doesn't follow. And the people that say that haven't actually thought very carefully about it because if you think that you can't have an English parliament because it's too big well then you can't have a union of England and Scotland and Wales because England is still too big so <laughs> I'm afraid the, the you know if you have a United Kingdom which is composed of different sized countries it follows that if you have you know par par parliaments under that underneath that in a federal system there they would also be bigger or smaller what I don't like is a sort of anti-English tendency, which you got in the Labour Party, to try and split England into little um, regions. And we had a look at that in the region that I live in, in the northeast, and we rejected it totally. We don't want England to be split up into little regions. I think the people that argue that just aren't very comfortable with Englishness. In regards to uh, the idea of a devolved English parliament, how much do you su how much support do you think that actually has in terms of the uh, wider population i think it's changing i think i think there was i think english people were quite ambivalent to it um and i think you know for, for a long long time the tendency was for english people to basically uh view their identity as synonymous with britishness so i mean this has been going on a long time and they they didn't really need to, i mean if you you know if you're the largest largest component in a, in a multinational state like this, uh, it really wasn't very important. I think what's what's I mean, it, it, interestingly, I mean, if you look at the 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 uh, after I was born in 1966 when England won the World Cup, it was largely Union flags that were being waved around at Wembley. And as I say, the English people thought of the Union flag as theirs, almost synonymous with the English flag. But I think that's changed. It's one of these cultural turns which, over you know, 20, 30, 40 years, has changed. So you, I think, in a way, the Celtic nationalism has woken up English nationalism and a sense of English identity, which is, uh, put it this way, in terms of a direction, I think uh, a sort of enlightenment of Englishness is, um, is, is the direction we're going in. And I see no reason why we shouldn't um, 
take it to its logical conclusion and have a parliament. Now, um, your party is seen to be sort of culturally and socially right wing. Um, now, um, what is your policy on sort of the hot button sort of traditional, I guess, um, the issues that have always sort of dominated social conservatism on um, gay marriage and abortion? Uh, good question. I just want to slightly challenge you there. I mean, we, uh, it, I mean, I suppose even occasionally we use that as a, a sort of shorthand to say, you know, left on the economy, right on culture. But, but I simply don't accept that. I mean, I, I think uh, if you if you look at the history of, um, I mean, you know, the SDP is an offshoot of the Labour Party, and if you look at uh, Labour's history intellectually, if you look at figures like Attlee and Gate School and Peter Shaw, uh, you will find you know, social conservatism. I mean, uh, you know, the, the, the idea that um, you could do what you liked, uh, the individualism that we, we were faced with now, uh, pe people on the left uh, were constantly argued against that. Um, also constantly argued in favour of the family. So I don't, I don't actually, I mean, you could say it's on the right, and I, you know, I concede it that people say that, but I, I personally don't, particularly in relation to red wall seats, actually. And, you know, if you look at the region that I live in, in Northumberland and, and Durham, uh, the traditional Labour voter is socially conservative. So it's, whether you say it's on the right or left is, is a little bit debatable. Um, so on, on, on gay marriage, yeah, I mean, we, we, we are socially conservative, but we're not, we're not in denial of the, what you might call the sort of great liberalisation uh, since the 60s. There's no going back. I mean, people, people, you know, we, we support gay marriage and the the SDP actually in the 80s was at the forefront of promoting uh, gay rights. And I, I, I see no no problem with that at all. The definition of the family that we use is, is pretty broad. Uh, what we do is defend, uh, you know, two two parents being present to raise kids, takes two to make them, takes two to, to bring them up. That's an ideal. It's not to say that, that it always works out like that. It's, ne it's certainly not to say that um, someone in a, 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 a desperate and happy marriage or an abusive relationship should, should, should put up with that. And, and often it doesn't work out. And so you're always gonna have you know, people, people raising kids uh, on their own and that, that's very tough. But as an ideal and for society, the data is in. I mean, there's no question that you know, stable two-parent families uh, uh, produce better outcomes for children and therefore for society. On the question of abortion, we don't, we're not going to, um, we're not going to have a, a party po policy on this. And, and, and I think probably, uh, I think we're probably right to, to avoid that. Uh, I don't think any, any major political party does. Possibly some, some smaller parties do, but we, we won't be doing that. I think my personal uh, position is that uh, I think um, the term limits uh, present presently on abortion are probably too uh, too long, uh, and I would I would probably reduce those. Uh, I think um, ethically, it's very difficult to um, to to make a case for a, a, say a, a thought experiment, a, a, a hospital um, uh, where a premature baby of of, of, of twenty weeks, whatever is being kept alive and in the same hospital uh, a baby for that term is, 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 is being aborted. I think that's a very difficult question. Uh, I also think there's probably more evidence now on the viability um, uh, 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 on that question as well, but I'm not against abortion personally uh, in, in principle.
We're coming to the end of the podcast and it's been great to speak to you, William, and I have one final uh, question. A collection of 300 historical swords, including a sword that is believed to have been given to Lord Nelson uh, by his uncle, is at the moment being uh, looked at by Hartlepool Borough Council to be uh, bought and displayed in Hartlepool. So my final question to you is this. What do you think of that move and how do you consider uh, Lord Nelson in the context of uh, historical uh, British figures? Well, I, I think that you open up abroad. I mean, of course, a, a major, a major historical figure, and um, along with his contemporary Collingwood, who is a, a, you know, a massive local hero in Newcastle. You know, and there's a there's a, a very fine uh, plaque in Newcastle Cathedral on on, on, on Collingwood. Um, I think generally we we we've we've the move to um, I, I think the English have always been a little bit. Uh, ignorant actually in in history it's not just you can blame progressives for sort of uh wanting to decolonize and to denigrate british history and imperial history you can you can ha you can do that but the but the broader problem has for many many years has been just a a, a a lack of interest a slight indifference to our own own history so no i i'd support that i think i think any attempt to reconnect us with uh with our past is is a very positive thing and as a, as a culturally traditional party, we'd uh, support that 100%. Thank you uh, for coming on uh, the podcast, William. If people want to find out more about the SDP or yourself, where should they go to find out more about you and your party? Well, the best place is the main website, which is sdp.org.uk. Uh, and on there, you'll find um, uh, obviously our policies and details of the party and, uh, and also something called SDP Talk, which is a series of articles and also uh, filmed interviews with, uh, with, with various political figures, including people like Peter Hitchens and uh, Calvin Robinson and various others, uh, Claire Fox. So have a look at that. And uh, you can, we're on Twitter as well, you'll find us. Uh, and, and yes, uh, check us out. Excellent. Thank you once again for coming on the podcast. Pleasure. Great pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the podcast. If you've enjoyed it, you can subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, Podbeam and Amazon Music. You can also follow us on Twitter, at Debated Podcast, like us on Facebook, Debated Podcast, and if you'd like to get in touch with us, whether about appearing on an episode of the podcast or commenting on an episode that you've listened to, you can do so at thedebatedpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you for listening. I hope you listen to the next one.